Hey everybody, this is Kevin Eslin, and you are listening to another episode of Fox Stories. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to set up a bit of context. So, two years back, I wanted to get out of my regular circles and do something that didn't involve technology. For those of you unfamiliar with my day job, I work as an engineer within Amazon. I ended up picking up salsa dancing. And at the time, what I didn't realize is that that decision would lead to some of the most significant relationships that I have today. Most of these encounters took place within the Century Ballroom, an incredible dance studio in the heart of Capitol Hill, Seattle. Hallie Kupferman is the owner of the Century Ballroom and the Tin Table Restaurant adjacent to the ballroom. She created an incredible community at the Century, and this is something that I know myself and many others are incredibly grateful for. Hallie moved to Seattle over two decades ago and learned to swing dance after her arrival. She started teaching swing to the LGBT community not soon after, which soon expanded into teaching all forms of dance when she signed the lease on the Century Ballroom. Hallie has been managing and teaching at the Century for over two decades now and has overcome many hurdles in the interim. This includes a dramatic rent increase after the building was sold to a new developer, which drove out all the other tenants, and a steep dance tax levied by the state of Washington. With the Century Ballroom, Hallie has created not just a great dance hall, but an incredible community, one that comes together in times of hardship. Examples include events such as Dance Your Pants Off for Lorraine, a fundraiser held for fellow dancer Lorraine, which raised money for her cancer treatment, another fundraiser held in 2013 that raised over $90,000 to help keep Century afloat after the dance tax. I could go on about Hallie and the Century, but I'd rather let her do the talking. So now, without further ado, I give you Hallie Kupperman. Hallie, welcome to Folk Stories. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I have a lot of places where I thought we could start, but I figure maybe it's good to start at the beginning and talk about um, what led you to Seattle and to Century. As I understand it, I've read somewhere on the internet, so this might be totally false. Oh, no, I love that. Is right. that you grew up uh, in the East Coast in New York and did stage, uh, stage props and lighting while in school. And I'm wondering if that's true, first of all. And second, how, it led, how you started off from that and ended up here in Seattle running the Century Ballroom. It is true. I was a stage manager. That's what I got my degree in. Uh, and I went from there to Boston to work in Boston, uh, basically to Seattle. Um, and so, yeah, so that part's true. And when I got here, I had wanted to learn to swing dance for, I mean, I had been a stage manager, but it was also, I liked to dance. Um, I didn't take a bunch of dance lessons, but I knew I wanted to learn how to swing dance at some point. I really liked 50s everything. I liked 50s music. I liked 50s clothing. And uh, growing up, I would listen to that music. So I was 10 years old listening to 50s rock and roll and, and, and loved the musical Grease. So I think that, that also came out when I was a kid and I saw that when it opened on Broadway. And when I got here, I learned to swing dance while I was stage managing. And so I was, you know, and I was like, and it took, I, I just took to it. It wasn't that I was the best in the world. It was that I, but it was pretty easy for me, and I really liked doing it. And I was also learning to partner dance, mostly in the gay community. So there was a lot of two-stepping and waltzing. But I was taking Lindy Hop and Swing and anything else I could take in terms of social dance. Um, and 
I started booking the bands because I was an, I knew about events, and I started booking the bands for the place that I was taking lessons, and they would throw these dances every couple of weeks. And about a year into it, I knew I wanted to teach other people how to lindy hop in the gay community. So I was pretty focused about it. It wasn't just that I wanted to teach lindy hop. I wanted to bring it to the gay community. And so I, the people who were teaching me to dance actually put together a program and taught a handful of us how to teach dance. I know that when I'm learning a new skill, like it's hard for me just to think about like how do I go to the dance floor and not make a fool of myself um, I feel like you know teaching teaching it in addition to that I don't know if dancing was something that you only started when you got to Seattle or you had done before Seattle but it just seems to me that teaching is a whole different beast from learning it is but if you had to teach somebody how to do something you would get much better at it much faster I mean that's the other thing is when you It's not that I think everybody can teach. I don't believe that. And I, the same way, I don't think I'm the best dancer out there. I'm, I'm a fine dancer and a good dancer, and, I, you know, and I've tried a lot of different dances over the years to figure out which ones I actually like and which ones my body likes. But teaching is its own art form. But it does make you learn something when you have to break it down into the minutia. So the first class I ever taught, I handed out students five pages of notes on how to do like a five-week series of East Coast Swing. But the, I wrote it out so that on count one, your left foot goes here. On count two, and I wrote it out for both leads and follows. So I handed them a book, and I no longer do that. I barely write notes for myself, but I still write notes because you really have to think about it. And it just makes – when you have to break it down like that – It's great. So I, I tell high school kids, like when, we, when I teach for high school or, or kids in general, I go, go home and teach your parents. You know, go, go teach somebody else because you'll remember it. You'll practice it. And it's a really great way to learn, really. doesn't mean you're going to be a good teacher at the end of the day, but it does mean you have to think about it. Did you know when you were first starting swing that it's something that you wanted to teach? Or did, you, was, yeah. did the teaching come later? Yeah, the teaching came later. Yeah, I was addicted to it. I just love dancing, uh, you know. And I think you would be one of those people who, you know, gets – if you get into it and you take to it at all, there's such a great community there. It's so physical. It, it's – if – for me, music is really important. I like dancing. Uh, music is, a, I think, probably a big reason why I dance and also what – inspires me for certain things. So if I'm not a lover of the music, I probably am not a lover of the dance. It's not something I will, like, I think tango is beautiful. But I, and I actually, if I were in Argentina, I would love to listen to the music and watch the dancing. But it's not a music that really draws me to want to dance yet. It might be. So I think that's why over the years when I've tried to do something that is in dance that where the music hasn't inspired me as much. I'm like, I'll, like, I'll sit out a bunch of dances at a salsa dance or a swing dance if I'm not really into the music. Then the song comes on I love, and then I'm like on the floor. So music is something um, that is, I find, very subjective and very individualized to the person. Oh, It's yeah. maybe even to the moment or like what happened to that day. And for you, what sort of music maybe currently... Uh, speaks to you? Like, what sort of music do you listen to that you just have to dance to? 
Oh, it really runs the gamut. Um, everything from country western music to Viennese waltz. I mean, I like hip hop music. I like disco. I like Motown and soul. Uh, I like R and B. I like some contemporary music. Um, I like singer songwriter stuff. I don't tend to be a person who really loves. Well, I mean, the '80s music maybe that I heard in the '80s, but uh, I wouldn't say that that's my genre. I didn't. I don't even know what music they made in the '90s. Was there any music made that's interesting? I mean, nobody ever talks about music from the '90s, so I have no idea of what that even is. I don't like grunge music. I don't think, but I also, even though I, you know, I, I don't listen to grunge music, so maybe I do. I love Bruce Springsteen. He's probably at the top of my list. So there's quite a lot. Yeah, that's what I'm getting. Um, you mentioned in the beginning that when you started off teaching, you were specifically focused on the LGBT community. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can go a little more into that. Why start off with LGBT? Well, first off, I'm gay. Uh, so I spent a lot of time dancing in that community. There was a great club at Denny and Boren called the Timberline. And it was a country western bar, which s some people consider to be, and maybe I'm one of them, an oxymoron that the gays are dancing to country western music, which seems to, like, when I think of the country western music in Texas, I, gay is not the first thing that comes to my mind. But there was a lot of country western music, a lot of fast swing, um, east coast swing, and waltzing. And so I was dancing in that community, and then when swing music would come on, I would lindy hop, and people were really interested in that. But I was also in this other world where I was learning to dance, and I learned as a lead. So I never, I never learned to follow, as you know, over time I have. But, um, and so I just wanted to bring that into this place where I was, I was dancing in both worlds, and I just wanted everybody to know this dance that I was addicted to, which was a lindy hop. So you started off with teaching swing to the LGBT community, and then at some point along the line, essentially um, opened up for Ghent, and you decided that that's something that you wanted to be a part of. Can you take me through that moment? Like, was that an easy decision? Did you think about it? What was that process like? So it was, I was dancing a lot at the Timberline, and I was teaching some, and I what I thought I might want to do was go teach in the gay communities outside of Seattle. I thought I would go like to go on tour, you know, as a teacher. And I ended up teaching for Olivia cruises, which is a lesbian cruise line, uh, cruises and they do a bunch of stuff. But, and I did my first teaching experience on that going to Alaska. Now I get motion sickness a lot. So I, I took <laughs> Dramamine, which is kind of funny because it just makes you sleepy. So I was on the boat, and I would teach these classes and see these. I saw great – I mean, I made tons of friends, saw great comedy, great music, and people loved taking class. So I taught a lot of different things. So that was the, sort of my first experience. And then I came back, and then I went out on another cruise, and I had to learn to salsa dance at that point because I think I was going to the Caribbean or something like that. And I was like, oh, I should probably learn how to salsa dance. And at the time, I was kind of learning, and I started doing some salsa dancing uh, at the rebar for the gay community because there was somebody who was DJing there a salsa night and he was a gay guy and so and after doing a couple of the cruises I started renting 
what is now the Century Ballroom, but at that point was owned by the Odd Fellows. still. I started renting their space on a weekly basic, basis to just teach class, like most people do. Um, and then every so often I would throw a dance. So, you know, the room at the time, I mean, if you've never seen the room, you won't know what I'm talking about, but the room was big, open, 40, 500 square foot, just floor. It was a mess. The place was, you know, painted green and white and graffitied, and but it was this amazing big wood floor. So I'd bring in a, you know, get a blaster and play my music and DJ a dance, and I play all styles of music, which is currently, still, you know, twenty five years later, just what I do when I do out dancing. It's still the same thing. I play a bunch of different styles of music, but it's in a much prettier space. So I started doing that, and then I thought, you know, what we're missing in the world of social dance at that time, twenty something years ago was a place where adults would go. You could eat and drink in a beautiful environment because most places that you go to, and that's still the case, are in these small little studios or in the, you know, maybe at Leif Erikson Ballroom or, you know, the Swedish Hall or something like that. And here was this amazingly beautiful space. I, At least I could see how beautiful it could be. Um, so put together a proposal, got turned down. I found a person uh, who was a, a dancer in the modern dance community to kind of make coffee and do the, the restaurant part of it. And after we got turned down, a few months later, they came to us and said, okay, well, we're not going to rent the space to somebody else, so you want to do this. So blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of volunteer hours and a shit ton of money on a credit card. We just opened up, you know, one step at a time, one can of paint. And when you opened up, what was essentially like, uh, like back in '97? Was it, was it something that was still targeted at the LGBT community, or was it uh, like how different is it from what it was today? Um, no, I did. I didn't want a gay club. So my goal was take the things I loved, which was Lindy Hop and dancing. And bring everybody together to do it because it seemed like pretty pretty much of a no-brainer to me. Like, here's the thing. I think music and dance really are the things that bring cultures together. And I think everybody could probably say that. You can like all styles of music, which brings you to every culture out there. Um, so I didn't want to have a gay club. But I did continue to do, you know, these nights. So our classes were open to everybody. But, you know, the first class I ever taught in Lindy Hop for the gay community, there were probably 95 women who showed up. And like probably three men or something like that. I don't know. Not not lots. Um, and, but as we taught, the thing is, I wasn't I wasn't as versed in salsa dancing. So as much as we tried to do salsa dances, because we thought, oh, here's a beautiful space, we weren't teaching the classes. And so we've tried three different occasions. We tried to throw dances with good DJs who are in town DJing at other places. Ten people would show up. I mean, every once in a while, I run into one of the people who would show up. Um, go, oh, I remember when we used to do those dances. It wasn't until we started teaching that we could start to throw a dance. And quite honestly, there's just a very easy – there's a formula for making a business like this work. And it is teach a dance, give a student a place to go dancing, and make sure your teachers are the best. You know, whether or not, you know, they're most well-known, who cares? But if they are good teachers that care about their students and you have a place for your students to go dancing, it works. I mean, that's why small studios work. It's why big studios work. 
It's interesting in this in these cases because you are literally creating the customers and with the classes, yeah, and then you're providing people、yep. a place to dance on the other side. Yeah, which is you know, and sometimes people go,、oh, I moved to this place and there's no dancing. I'm like, then teach it, you know, teach it, and you can make dancers. You know, people will people like to dance. When you first started、uh, at Century, was it hard to get an initial batch of students? Was it you know, did you have any problems filling up the initial classes and initial、oh, yeah. dances? I mean, I don't know about filling up. I mean, here's the thing: what all we were really trying to do was pay rent, and the restaurant wasn't making any money at all. That was just a total, you know, nothing. Although it was also very different. It was a daytime cafe, really geared toward what had been in the building at the time. So in the building, there was Freehold Theater and Seattle Mime Theater and Velocity Dance Studio and all of these businesses. So we were like, open up a cafe. We ultimately serve in the ballroom at night. But classes are really what kept it going, and so yeah, I mean they they grew, they just grew little by little. But you, know, the space is again big, so there are very few classes where we max out. But we do, we max out at sixty or seventy or eighty people in class, which seems crazy to take a class that big. But also, if you're at a higher level class and you're in a class that big, you're it's exciting because you are all together and growing up together in the world of dance. So, I think it was ten years after you guys opened that the Odd Fellows building was sold to another developer, who increased the rent、uh, by not a small amount. And a lot of the places you mentioned、um, were ended up moving away from the building, but you guys held on. And I'm wondering, like, what made Century different that you guys could do that, or what made you decide that it was worth doing? So the ballroom holds three hundred people. And if you have a vision that you can fill 300 people in that space, you could do events that could hold 300 people. You could rent it out, maybe.、Um, that that was why we thought we could hold on. I mean, the own the new owners of the building had a different idea about how that w- could work. We could just triple whatever we charged, and we were like, "That doesn't work." The, our model is to charge as little as we can, so you will dance as much as you can afford to dance. So tripling our cover charge wasn't going to work, but if we added a dollar to everybody's cover charge and we could keep working on attendance, and that's attendance in class and attendance at open dances, then we could probably make that work. And truthfully, it took us eight years. We hit, we opened the、um, the tin table because. We had great chefs, and nobody, you know, nobody knew that. And if you didn't go dancing, you had no idea. So the tin table has sort of opened it up. It's the same business, but it's just a different name, so that you wouldn't be afraid. You wouldn't have to be like, "I'm going to the Century Ballroom Restaurant," because that made you think you had to go dancing. So the tin table, you could just go to the restaurant, the tin table, even though it's part of the ballroom.、Um, and that, you know, a restaurant is a restaurant. <laughs> it's never your biggest money maker. It holds its own. Taking, oh, we had another space prior to the building being sold. We had another space called Halo, which stood for Halley's Loft, and it was at Pike and Summit. And people loved that space. It had four poles in the middle of it, so it was a little different. But we used it for shows. We also did tons of classes there and dances. That's where Monday nights also practical started. And, you know, it was a good space, minus the four poles. But people were used to that. It was pretty.、Um, so. We took over. We kept our space, bit the bullet, charged a dollar more, 
opened the restaurant and we we took over this space that was Velocity Dance Center because it attached to the restaurant and we figured it'd be kind of weird exit-wise to have somebody else have to go through our space if they needed it. So that seemed ridiculous. And then we let go of the other space and moved about a year after we took over those spaces. We moved to the third space on our floor. So we basically ran the second floor. And that was too much money. Ultimately, we just were like, you know, it still took eight years to get to zero again. So it was a rough eight years. And now, knock on wood, you know, it's, it's evened itself out a little and we're doing, you know, we're out of a recession where, you know, it's just a better time. So so what changed from the beginning of those eight years to the end where you were, you know, finally able to turn things around? Were there any like major things that you changed or was it a bunch of little changes over time? I think it was really perseverance more than it was changing, you know. So you look at programming and you think, I mean, I've stuck through doing dances where there were 15 people in a dance for years. Why? Because it goes with if we teach a dance, we need to give a student some place to go dance. So we stuck with that model. Um, Kizomba has grown. Bachata has grown. So there are dances that have grown. Swing dancing has ebbed and flowed. I mean, there was a moment in time years ago where we thought, oh, we should just can it because 30 people are at the dance. And now there's, you know, 150 people on one night and 200 people on another night. And, you know, and now we have three dances. And it's a little bit for me is it's like, you know, riding the waves. You know, everything changes. You know, it's going to go up and down. And you just kind of look at it and see if it fits the mission and what your mission is. And I get, you know, I get bored. So I'm always trying to think of something new to do or look at what's next. Mostly f you know, yes, for the business, but also because I want to be entertained. I mean, 22 years of – or 25 years of teaching, but 22 years of doing the same thing, I want to do some new stuff. Do I think the difference now – the difference before the building was sold and after that eight years is there was eight years of not taking a lot of risks. There was eight years of making sure we could pay our rent whether or not it was throughout the month or at the beginning of the month. But mostly, you know, that was the goal. Pay the people, pay the rent in that order. And then what you, what you get out of having a little bit of air is that you can go, I am willing to lose money on this thing. And I do, I do a handful of things a year where I go, don't care if I make any money, don't care if I lose a bunch of money because I think it's worth doing or because I really want to do this thing. And so that's great. You know, what, that's not something you do when you're really like, can I pay the staff? I've got a big staff. At times when you did have a little bit of air and you could do something where you could potentially not make any money, what sort of events did you go? Like, what were those uh, moments like? I think the biggest event that we did where we didn't really make much money on it, and I, actually we lost money on it, was the Masters of Lindy Hop and Tap. And that was, it came out of a suggestion that a swing dancer had said out loud to me, and I was like, oh, that has to happen. And it was bringing together all the originators of the form of Lindy Hop who were still alive, you know, and we're talking about, you know, this dance girl out of Harlem in the 30s and 40s, and there were people like Frankie Manning and Norma Miller, um, who who were originators of this dance form 
who could tell you stories. And so the, the weekend was bringing together all of these older dancers to teach class, yes, but mostly to talk. So we did lots of panels and interviews and storytelling. And we videotaped, we hired, uh, you know, we actually hired good videographers. And we did it for a handful, probably like three or four or five years. And along with that also came a big show where all of these old timers would perform. We brought in a band from a huge big band from uh, L.A. And so for me, that was absolutely worth I mean, history, you don't get back. So Frankie is no longer alive. Uh, Norma's going to be 99 this year, and we've still seen her. She still comes to Seattle sometimes. But um, Don Hampton has passed away, and Jenny Lagan has passed away. And these are all, like, people who, you know, we got to talk to and sit around and listen to and laugh with and learn from. And that's a that's a once-in-a-lifetime. It's really incredible. And it's really once in a lifetime. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you think a lot about um, are you having fun and, you know, does this, this what I'm doing? Is it coherent with the mission? And I know that something that you've talked a lot about, and I think it's also on the Century uh, page, is um, community and, you know, building out this really great community um, where people can come and socialize and feel safe. And I'm wondering two things. Like, one is, like, what does community mean to you? And two is, like, what is the Century community? Community to me means I've got your back. So if I don't, you know, you're, you've, you take class with us and something, something's going on in your life and somehow or another we hear about that or you work for me and, and do you, you know, you need something that we together as a group of people who know each other through this realm of eating, drinking, and dancing together can figure out how to support you and have a place that you can come to or have a fundraiser that we can raise money for you or we can support you in whatever whatever way that means. And I think about that a lot, and it's something that this year is probably one of the things that I will try to incorporate and it's, I've been brewing on it for a long time about how to – we have a couple nights where we don't do anything. And I was like – and I just said it to Allison yesterday about wanting to do these sort of like community nights, fundraising nights. And, and, they, and I haven't – it's per, been percula, percolating. So I, I don't know exactly what form that will take. You know, community event night where you get to say, I would like to raise money for this thing I'm really am involved in, you know to play baseball i don't know what it is but you know some and go okay you get this friday night because we're not doing anything you got three weeks promoted do your thing and you have space because we have space um so for for me the community is not just the ballroom or the tin table they're not separate that is one whole thing and I, i really stress that with everybody who works there that it's not one business or the other business it is just a business, and these are our people. The people who come here probably know us and the ballroom longer and more than any of the people who work for me do. You know, there's only a few of us who've been there the almost the whole time or the whole time, and that's amazing to have people work for you for twenty something years. You know, but 
there have been dancers who have been dancing there for 20-something years. So that is our community. The, the fact that you can move away and come back and we are still here, it's a place that you can always feel safe um, and a place that you call home. You know, because for everybody who dances, if you, you know, more than I just showed up one night and left, for anybody who dances for any amount of time, you find some friends there, you find some place that is consistent that you go to every week. And there's something so um, calming or comforting to come back in. And feel like it hasn't changed. I mean, you usually say, oh, I know that person, but wow, there's a lot of new faces here, which is great. That's our job. Our job is to introduce new people to dancing. But there's some of the same old faces, but it still feels like home. And so that to me is community. That's more like family. I think you definitely created an incredible community at Century. And being somebody that has you know gone there for the past two years, so knockoff at zero. Uh, I can tell you that some of my most important relationships and also, um, I would say, like significant moments happened at the ballroom. Um, people I met there, things we did afterwards. So, like to me, it's definitely become a second home. That's great. So, thank I you. I love to hear that. I, I'm wondering. This focus on community, is this something that you've always been focused on? And, you know, why? Like, why is community so important? Uh, I mean, I don't know if I could have answered this question years ago. I, I think because I have always been in the arts in some way, shape, or form. So that's sort of – that's my background. And if you're in theater – you know, you create that. That's a community. That's a, I mean, anybody in that community, theater community, arts community, would say that that's how they describe it. It is a family, whether or not it's a family for a show or a family for the company you work with. So I think I've always had that. I And so I got into that when I was in high school, and I just never left that. So I have been involved in communities for years. And... Um, so I think that's probably why, as it just sort of happened that I found safety and friendship and that is – I mean I, I call those people, those – my friends are my family. And so I consider my family to be both my, my blood family but also my extended family is my family. For me, um, when I grew up, my parents moved around a lot. So, like, I've been in Seattle for around five years now, and it's actually the longest I've stayed anywhere. And so I know that, like, when I first came to Seattle, like, I really, like, wanted to be a regular at certain places because of that sense of, like, belonging. Yeah. So I went to the same Mediterranean restaurant every single day until none of my teammates would eat with me because I, like, was sick of that place. Like, <laughs> just go by yourself. And that's, like, I have this similar, like, instinct to, like, create these communities. And so I form, like, little groups. But... I found that one of the challenges is that in a community, because everybody's so connected, it also means everybody has a huge influence on everyone else. And sometimes having, I, I find that a single individual can either lift the community to like bigger heights or actually change the whole dynamic to a place where like people might not feel so safe or not comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've always had trouble dealing with. And I'm wondering when, 
as you're building this community at Century, have you encountered those challenges where like certain individuals did not necessarily like made it harder to have the community and how you handle that or how you think about that? Maybe I don't understand the question exactly because the community for me is a huge thing, right? So it's, it is everything from thousands of people to, you know, the community of people we create who, who work there. Um, so obviously there are people who, you know, you individually connect with better or see, uh, you speak the same language a little easier. Uh, and on some level, I have to believe that, you know, everybody has something to offer. And I think your reasoning for wanting to talk to people and get to know people is that I meet thousands of people. I couldn't tell you 99.9% of their names or anything about them. And to me, I think that's the hardest thing about the job uh, and the life is that you so I have a small community of people really who are my friends and have been my friends for years and and some people come in and go out some people move some people stay some people but the larger community I don't I don't feel like there are individuals or things that that rock the boat I think that because there's so many people in that community it works itself out so so I'm not sure I 100% understand the question. Yeah, that's fair. And I think it's also self-selecting. Like people who go there, they'll find some sort of cluster to fit yeah. in. Um, I guess the context I was thinking of is like a concrete example. A couple of years ago, I was running a small improv group and we practiced in my living room. Mm-hmm. And so this was like four or five people. So very different size in the century community. But improv, like we were all new at it. And it's something that, especially starting out, like to go on stage and not know what you're doing, um, which some people could argue that's what we're do- I'm doing right now <laughs> as well, is something that takes a lot of vulnerability. And you just have to be really comfortable with the people around. And I remember for the, that we had one person who, like every single time, they um, for, would always bring drama and always uh, introduce conflict and talk about people and basically make other people not feel comfortable around performing until basically everybody in the group came to talk to me individually about this to the point where I eventually had to talk to that person and anyways ended up not coming anymore but afterwards it's like night and day there was such a big difference Mm -hmm. where people were able to be more open and more expressive and so I guess like that's what I meant. Yeah I mean obviously over time, we've had people who have come and gone and and worked at the ballroom who have fit in and worked and understood. You know, we do our best to say, I used to be like, you can't, you can't work at the door if you dance because it's too challenging. You'll want to get up and dance. But, you know, then over the years, I've been a little bit like, you know, the best people to work for us are people who know us and people who love what we do. I mean, that's really what we're looking for. This is not a job that anybody's going to do for their whole life. It's not a, it's not a career builder. It's a, it's a place that, you know, gets you some extra money. Maybe you work full time. But most of the people, it's – and so I was like, oh, if you like dancing, then maybe that's not such a bad thing. Or at least you love music or something. Um, there are people who come in. Uh, in the bigger community, in the larger sense, and and 
we've had problems and we've had to, you know, pull somebody aside and go, this is where somebody has complained about something, you know, and you just have that conversation. And, and it's hard because we, because we feel like this is our living room and this is your living room. We just have to, we have to understand for ourselves. And as a, I guess as the boss, I have to sort of have the thing that says, here are the limitations. Like you cannot do this behavior and then we all know that if somebody's doing that behavior, we have to have a conversation with that person. Um, but, you know, if there's a bad apple, usually they end up working themselves out. Um, I have rarely had to fire anybody in all the years. And, you know, if my goal is to be, the, you know, a boss that people like, I think I have managed to do that simultaneously. I think that people wished I had been a little bit more, you know a little bit more structured. It's not exactly my way. And so, you know, is that good or bad? I I don't know. I, you know, I am the person I am and I lead the way I lead. Um, so. And it's been keeping people coming for the past 20 years. So I, you Keeps know. people coming, keeps people working there. And that is the other thing that is important to me. I mean, I, it's always sad to see somebody leave. It is always sad to be like, I mean, I had a very funny story. Uh, years and years, when we first opened, we had a guy uh, named Carlos who worked for me. And I loved him. He was a Cornish. He was a musician at Cornish. And he worked the door. And, you know, we stuff, you know, only three dances a week or something. Carlos uh, moved away, did his thing. Um, and, I, and I saw him at one point, And we were like, oh, let's get a drink. And it was years later. So, relative, you know, in the last, I don't know how many years now, he was back. So we went and had a, a drink talking blah 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 and he said well if you ever need help and i was like i always need help if you want to come on by at any point in time you can have your old job back or whatever and i was joking around so he came in and he actually helped us out for something and i introduced him to this other person uh, a woman who was who was working across the hall for the academy of burlesque they ended up dating they got married i did i got my license and married them on stage and they went away and had a baby and i was like okay well i did some good <laughs> and that's you know there's my family there's you know people who leave the ballroom come back to the ballroom and i i love that about that um so i uh, what i like about it is that even though i there are very few careers there where that's you're going to stay there for your whole life. There's something about that place that if you do have a full-time job there, that you could stay there for quite some time and be entertained. I think that's really beautiful. When you initially signed the lease at Century Ballroom, you know, now over 20 years ago, did you know that this is where you would be for the next two decades? Nope. Not at all. And I was still uh, I was still stage managing a little bit right in the beginning. And th- there was a test I took from the book, which I never read, called What Colors Your Parachute? And the book uh, had this little test in it. I don't even remember how I found it. But basically, there are two columns, one to ten, and you write, you know, ten things I like about this, and you write in one column and down the other. And then you compare. So I like... It's easier to explain with houses. I did it with stage managing and teaching. So those were my two things, but it's easier to explain. Like I would like a house that has a wood stove and a washing machine and a yard and a corner lot. And, and you write all these things down. Actually, I did it with my house too. And then you compare one-to-one. I'd rather have a wood stove over wood floors. 
And at the very end of doing this with stage managing and teaching, it came out that I should be a teacher. But right in the beginning, I was like, I still need to pay my own rent, so I better keep stage managing. So I kept doing that. And then finally, I was just like, I can't, you know, I'm going to go for it. And I don't think I thought, how long could this go for? But I thought, people will always dance. End of conversation. There will always be a dancing happening. Will they always pay for dance? Yeah, probably. People have always paid for dance. And in your new life, as you know, a committed teacher and also the owner of the Century Ballroom, I'm wondering, what is your typical day? Do you have, do you have a typical day? Um, what does it look like? Now? Yeah. I teach uh, at nighttime. One, two, three, four. I can uh, three to four or five nights a week, anywhere between one and three and a half hours a night. Um, I teach some private lessons. I tend to take the days that I don't. I don't teach on like Tuesday and Wednesdays. I, I don't teach at night. So I tend to either do private lessons during the day if I can, or I tend to say I don't want to do that. The thing is, is that I we all realized, and I was a real. I'm the person who probably was like, no, we need to get together and be in an office. And so there are only like four of us who work in an office together. And ultimately, I think it took me years, but I realized that we don't all have to be in the office because I'm on my computer in the morning because that's I'm awake in the morning and I like the mornings and I'm I, you know, I am better focused than I am at two in the afternoon, quite honestly. So at seven in the morning, I guess, you know, shit ton done. And at two. I don't. I'd rather be napping. So I – and then a few years ago, I started playing squash. So I actually like to uh, spend some off time hitting a ball around a small court and running around. Um, I love my garden. So in the winter – in the summertime, I'm like, if I don't have to be in the office, I won't be in the office. I love the warm weather. So, so I do anything and everything I need to do. I clean – if I need to clean, I organize, I DJ when I DJ, I teach, I sit at the bar, I, you know, I, I do anything that's needed, basically. But I also have great people to do things. So I don't have to always be there. And most of them don't either. You know, my sort of right left hand person, Gavin, who's been there for, you know, almost 20 years, I guess, close to that, you know, he, he too doesn't have to be in the office all the time anymore. So he can do a lot of stuff from home and he does. And he, but he knows a little bit about every single thing that happens there, you know, more than I do probably. And I think that's sort of the nice part. And so I, I really have a pretty flexible schedule and I like it that way from December to March. It's really very busy for us because we have lots of stuff going on we you know do that big fundraiser that I, that's called seattle dances with plymouth housing and so everybody's busy for three months rehearsing and getting ready for the show we have new year's eve we have our valentine's day we have our anniversary party um we have a show that's in west hall all month so like we're kicking it like back to back to back to back events so i know that like last year, I, by the time mid middle of March ran around, came around, I was like, "I think I'm done now." Okay. Well, I first of all, I'd like to thank you for taking part of your nap time to come talk to me. It's a good time for me to just sit around and chat. Yes. Um, when you teach classes, are there any classes you 
particularly enjoy teaching? Uh, or are, are different I love classes teaching. different? Yep. I like every single type of class. I just like teaching. Uh, Short except Argentinian tango. Well, I, I, nobody would ever ask me to teach that dance since I don't really do it. Um, no, I like teaching everything. I mean, I like teaching. I, I So, actually, I, I'll be more specific. I like teaching beginning students um, because I think the learning curve is so uh, – you just see so much growth so fast. And that middle of the, you know, everybody who's an intermediate student, which is 99.9% of the people who ever dance, we're, you know, are in the intermediate level. That growth is so much slower and so much harder as you get more technical and get more precise. And, but I just, the, there's not a person that doesn't ever get something. You know, at the end of the day, whether or not it takes you years or it takes you minutes, everybody can learn to dance. It just is if you're interested in doing it. And again, for me, it was music um, and the style. And for some people, it's just I love to move in my body. So I don't care what the dance is. I just want to move. So something that I've heard a lot from my friends when, you know, we talk about, you know, what are you going to do over the weekend? And if dancing ever comes up and they've never danced before, I think a very common reaction is, well, I could never do that. And usually what I tell them is like, well, like if I can do it, you definitely can. <laughs> you're, I mean, you specifically are probably very aware of all my thoughts. Um, but I think it's something that's really intimidating to people. Oh, yeah. What do you say to people to like get them in the door and make them feel like it's possible? So there are two different ways people like to learn, I think. I mean, that's sort of so general, I can't stand it. But um, People either like one-on-one attention and are afraid of groups or people don't want to be seen. When you're in a group, you're really not seen. When you go to a social dance out on the floor, I'm like, who is looking at you if you can't dance? Nobody. There's not a – the only people we ever watch are the people who are great. We don't sit around and stare and go, that person doesn't know what they're doing. We don't even – you like – not you. I'm not saying that about – that's not what I'm doing, but that is what happens. We think we're going to be stared at, but the fact is, unless you're really good, nobody's looking at you. So, you, you know, you'll, you can let yourself off the hook. Some people, that group dynamic, I mean, it is social dance. So at some point in time, you kind of have to dance with people. So you can take private lessons all you want. Now, I'm a person who loves private lessons, so I'm just telling you the caveat is that I take a lot of private lessons when it comes to squash, and I really like that. <laughs> but... But being – we rotate partners so fast, and it's intimidating for everybody. It's – you know, for every class I get up in front of for the first, you know, first however long, there are a bunch of people staring, uh, and you're on the spot. And I get – you know, I, it's not that I'm nervous, nervous, but there's a sense of nervousness that in front of every new group. We were talking – yeah, so good. So, yes. So I think that the only thing I can say is – it would be like me going to take a singing lesson. I would tell you I could never sing. I could not do it. Of course I could do it. Am I going to get on stage and win a prize? No, I'm not. Probably not. But if I really wanted to learn how to sing, I would just go do it. I mean, I, I would maybe take, for me, I might take a private lesson. On the other hand, if you're in a group of people in a chorus, nobody notices you anyway you're just with a group of people singing and people are like you your energy that energy of people doing something together is huge um 
So again, choosing sort of your own, what is your personality? I feel like I'm, I really have a good fun time looking at somebody, getting to know somebody and trying to figure out what dance would I tell you to take based on my you know, two-minute conversation with you or some things you might tell me about your personality. Could I choose a dance form that I think you would like? I feel like that's my superpower. I know something that I've been told by Allison and also actually other followers I've danced with is this question of whether I do Lindy Hop and if I should consider doing Lindy Hop <laughs> because, um, as you know, like I tend to take bigger steps in salsa and apparently this is something that is desirable in Lindy Hop and less so in salsa. <laughs> so it's something I've been thinking about for a while now. Hysterical. That is very funny. Yeah, <laughs> it is. desirable. It is. Um, having now taught um, for over two decades, what are some things you do now that might have been different from when you first started out teaching? So one thing, I guess, is when I took salsa with you, I didn't get a paper handout. You didn't. So I guess that's, like, that's one thing. But what have you learned over this time? That everybody learns differently. And so I think I've known this for a long time, though. You need to come up with a million different ways to say the same thing and that everybody will get better. So you you have to take a look at a room of people and find the common denominator. You know, you can't teach to the worst student or the best student. You have to find the middle ground and the worst student will step up at some point and get there and the more advanced student will progress a little faster, but they'll push themselves in ways. Um, so we try to do everything from those who need to vi- the visual to see it, those who need the, the words to understand it, people who need rhythm to hear a rhythm, people who need a count because I need to know where my left foot is on count one, you know, people who need precision. And I think in this day and age, you know, with so many people involved in tech um, and there's so, there's so much – there's so many smart people in the world that are so analytical that – Dance is so good for them, but how they learn might be more analytical than than people who grew up just moving the bodies around to music. You know, so I'm not I'm not sure if it's how people are. Ha- I don't know if how people are learning now is different than it was 20 years ago. Um, I wouldn't be surprised though. So 20 years ago, you decided to move into century and. You show here. Do you have any plans for the next 10 years? Um, any changes you're planning on making? Any current challenges or things you want to try out? I think we'll end up doing some more. I think we'll go a little bit. I miss live music. And I don't mean even social dance live music. I just mean doing concerts. We don't have a lot of nights to do stuff because we, again, knock on wood and thank God, we are very popular. Dancing is very popular right now. So we have two dances a night almost every night. So that does not leave a lot of days in which to do other things. But I've been talking to different promoters about, you know, about doing stuff in the space when we're not there um, and using it. And so that we could be a a part of that. So whether or not that's, um, it it could be anything, music concerts, one night plays, could be trying to figure out how to do cabaret shows again. I mean, we used to do our own performances, and I don't think we're 
going to go back to that exactly, but I don't know. I mean, I'm talking with somebody right now about doing cabaret thing once a month before out dancing. Um, so we there are definitely some things that I'm I don't see us expanding space really. Um, so I don't think um, that is the thing. We do some stuff outside of the ballroom, but really what part of what makes it so great is the ballroom. So I like doing stuff in there. We're trying to use the space for other types of, you know, events during the day. So the space is not used a lot, obviously, during the day. We do some corporate stuff. It's a great meeting space. We have, you know, a lot of capabilities in there. We have a restaurant, so we can cater things. So we try, we're trying to branch that part of it out, also because the more people who see that space, the more people might get interested in dancing. So a little bit of it's a win-win for me. You know, we can rent the space and make some, you know, that helps us financially because there's not that. Then I have, like, you know, 12 other things about what I want to do in the middle of the night to make a living. Um but those are just in my head, and I need to talk to people who are smarter than I am about those types of things. Well, it sounds like one way or another, there's going to be plenty keeping you busy moving forward. There has to be. Otherwise, I'll be bored, and I don't want to be bored. I'm not usually bored. <laughs> I can definitely tell that. Um, something that I've heard about is that you like suits. I do. And I'm wondering, how did that strike, and what do you look for? Oh, it's changed over the years. So I used to love 30s and 40s. Actually, I still love 30s and 40s men's suits. I, I like the women's attire also, but I don't uh, I don't tend to wear dresses. So it's not even that I don't I don't wear dresses, but that's not because I don't because I like suits. But I love 30s and 40s clothing. So I that's what I started buying way back when. And when I was learning to Lindy Hop, I was like, I'm going to dress the part. Problem is, is that the I am little, and so finding clothes, and I never had anything altered, but finding clothes that fit me was really hard. So I used to wear these big suits. Over the years, and meeting other people have sort of changed my style, I started to wear suits that were more contemporary, uh, but also had some flair to them, and started to fit me. So I went from wearing these big, baggy, you know, 30s, 40s, style suits to wearing stuff that um that i found so a lot of you know italian men's suits um mr turk suits because i love pattern um so i just found different designers i just like clothes and i think it's like it's an interesting way that i get to express myself and because i always like to wear suits that's just the thing and i used to wear i used to dress up a lot more for class than i do now but every once in a while, I'll be like, you know, it's Tuesday. It's ruffle shirt day. And I own a collection of every colored ruffle shirt that you can – well, I don't have purple. I'm still looking. But I just – I think suits are really fun. Can we say that it suits you? It suits me. It does. And it, so that's the difference. I think the difference is just stylistically I upped my decades a bunch and I started to wear things that fit me. And then I started to get things altered if it didn't. One question. I think this is – Maybe not an issue, but I'm curious. Like, do you ever have a suit maybe that you really, really like that, say, Allison or, like, your, or your friends or like your family just, like, do you not like? And how do you – what do you do in that situation? Nobody's ever told me they don't like my suits. Okay. Never come up. Nope. They might not. They're not going to tell me. Because why would I tell you I don't like what you're wearing? I mean, 
I did. I go like, who cares what you think? <laughs> and so, you know, I usually. My ex-girlfriend used to help me buy st- lots of things. She's like one of the best designers I know in terms of just visually, you know, whether or not setting up a room or picking out clothes. But she's also very colorful. She has red hair and, you know, and her name is Ginger. So, you know, so color is really in her palette. And she helped me go from like finding things that I would never choose to put together. So it started – to change how I looked at stuff. I also, you know, so I collect glassware and it's all on shelves and colored coordinated glasses. You know, I, they're just things that I started to do a little bit because I like, I mean, I kind of call attention to myself if I'm a woman teaching as a lead because that just kind of calls attention to yourself. But, I, you know, it's one of the ways that, I, that I'm seen. And because I like to play with clothes, and that's one way. I think the only – I grew up wearing blue jeans, so I think the only other way would just put me back in blue jeans and a T-shirt, which is what I'm wearing now. Right. It's your, self, your means of self-expression. Yeah, very much so. Uh, on the topic of being a female lead, when you go out, let's say, social dancing, is that ever something that comes up? As in, do, do you ever have trouble because of that? I've never had trouble. I have I have been very lucky that way. Now over the years, uh, so and I've uh, but I'm I have definitely watched myself if I'm in a place. You know, I was in Montana, you know, and I walk in a bar and I'm going to dance around. Uh, I'll think about it once or twice. I think we're moving forward in the world a little bit slowly. Um, so I, I I guess if I were in a place where I felt. Like in Argentina, you can't be a female lead, really, or you have to find the right places to do it. I mean, it's actually, even in the city, there have been conversations about that, about women leading and it not being okay. And I go, oh, my God, I don't even, you know, maybe that's another reason why I'm just not interested in that dance and that culture. Because, But one of the things that leading, when I started leading, one of the things that happened is I became somewhat confident because I was decent at it. And so I was, you know, you'd be in a rotation and I'll, and this still happens to this day. This will happen all the time if you have women leading. Why are you leading? Or weren't there enough guys? I mean, people ask that to women leads all of the time. They never ask guys, why are you following? I will say that. That's true. I have never been asked that. And I think it's because men are probably a little – they just sort of ha- taking a deep breath and going, I'm going to have to do this, and they're not going to question it, whereas women are more like, what are you doing this for? What? And so, you know, that has happened. But because I felt like I, I got good early on, it made me more confident. So I just didn't really care what anybody said because people would say, oh, you're a good lead. You're better than those guys. I'm like, yeah, thank you. So it just made me more confident. So then I just didn't care about it. And now – I just don't care about it. There are a lot more women who lead, obviously not as many as men. There are a lot more men who follow. Obviously, better. Pe- when you get better, you you might want to challenge yourself as a person and you do the other role just so you understand it better. It makes you a better dancer. And most teachers also have to know both roles. So, you know, you, at the higher levels, you see more crossover. And there's definitely a push in younger communities now to open up and degender stuff. I think what 
I might have started in this city was not using the words male and female in class. And that has, I think for the most part, you, that's how you see people lead class, but clearly not all the time. And so our teachers know we don't use the, we don't use gender. It's not that I don't, if I'm talking to the person I'm teaching with and that person is a woman, I go, she, I don't say this person or they'll follow all the time. But if I'm trying to talk generally, I try to use the words lead and follow, you know, because that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And it used to bother me. And we have this conversation about if you're talking to, you know, the 99-year-old teacher who says men and women because that's what they grew up saying, do you correct them and say, no, you don't do that, that we only use these words? No, I'm sorry. I don't do that. That's not, you know. But if I bring teachers in, I say, please use these words. This, these are the words that we use, and hopefully they do. Yeah, you try to meet people where they are. I try to meet my elders where they are. Yeah. My peers, no, I don't. I say, yeah. I say, this is how it goes, and this is what you do in our space. And any of our teachers know that. I mean, that's a part of what they're told when they come to teach with us. But if I'm hiring somebody, I'm like, you're going to come. You're, I'm going to say you have to use these words. But my elders. <laughs> The, the originators, I, I step back. That's fair. Uh, Hallie, we're getting now near the end of this conversation, and I have a set of closing questions I like to ask everyone. And my first question is about something that has inspired you recently. It could be a book, it could be a person, it could be something you've seen, something you've experienced. Um... Well, I have recently been addicted to listening to Shonda Rhimes' book, The Year of Yes, for a lot of different reasons. One, because saying yes all the time is for everybody is, is hard. I mean, we all say no to many different things. Um, and I was really curious about – I heard a little snippet of it, and I was really curious about it. And why I've listened to it on repeat, I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, but – one of the things I did not know about her is that she was intensely, I mean, debilitatingly shy. So the year of yes for her, it like took her out of her comfort zone a thousand times over. Uh, and that was interesting to me. Also interesting to, we can isolate ourselves so very much and say no to so many things like, oh, I'll be too tired in the morning. I mean, I used to go out dancing 24-7, stay up all night, go to work the next, you know. And at some point in our lives, we choose something else, and we we make choices to do things. And and I, as we get older, and I want to remind myself to say yes to things that scare me, to say yes to doing new things, to to pushing the limit. So that's one of the things. The other inspiring book I just I've read for the second time um, is Animal Vegetable Miracle by Barbara Kingsolver which is about living locally for a year. Her and her family did it. And I have a garden. I didn't grow up. My mother ended up being a French chef, but that's beside the point because she didn't cook when, you know, when she was younger. And I only started cooking a handful of years ago. So I now have a very large garden that I'm trying to learn how to grow things and animal vegetable miracle about living locally and buying locally and growing locally and is just fascinating to me you know so those are i mean those are two things in the last week 
Uh, so I'll give you those are the most current. Well, take them. And there's going to be links to those and everything else we talked about in the show notes so people can also look them up uh, as well. The next question, what is something that people might find unusual or not know about you? You know, I thought about this question uh, because I knew you were going to ask this. And then I thought, how could I think about this question since we haven't had a conversation yet? So a whole hour is going to have gone by. And what will people have known or don't know? So everything we've talked about is about work. Uh, You said I grew up in New York, which is true. My mother died when I was 18. So that shaped some, some of my life. I have a horrible memory. And my father died of Alzheimer's a handful of just a few years ago. Hmm. I'm and, sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what I love about that, I mean, that story is he moved here from New York. He was a tried and true New Yorker. He moved here for about the last eight years of his life. And he was at the tin table every single day at the bar. He used to buy um, everybody dinner, talk to everybody. He's so proud of me. Really sweet. Uh, told the same stories over and over and over again. Um. But I think one of the things I'm most frustrated with my own self is that I have a horrible memory. And so I'm like, hmm, okay. Note to self. Note your own history. Uh, And it's frustrating because, again, I meet thousands of people. I learn, you know, and I go, oh, I wish I had a better memory. So there's something. Is there anything that – you are currently doing or are planning on doing about that? I don't know that you uh, – well, I mean you could listen to and read all the things. You do crossword puzzles or Sudoku or you could you know, do – no. There's not something that I'm doing. I, I, and it doesn't have anything to do with Alzheimer's really. It has to do with I just notice that about myself, and I and I question: Is it lack of attention? Is it question? Uh, is it? But I'm just, that's one of the things about myself that I go. Oh, I wish I had a better better memory. Yeah, I find myself saying that a lot too. Just from stuff like where are the keys to sometimes really big events. Yeah, um, I remember. So my grandfather passed away and four years ago. And but the good thing is I was able to see him um, like two weeks before that happened, mm. so it was bittersweet. But it was also good that I got to see him. And then you know two years ago, somebody had asked me about uh, like my family, and then I realized like it's been two years since I thought about that. And it's like I knew that like my yeah. grandfather passed away, but like for some reason like yeah. that just triggered it and hit me again. Like oh yeah, that's right. And it's just I don't know. Sometimes it's really scary. Like these really significant parts of like who you are that yeah. you know like if they hadn't asked me about it like would I have even like Thought called it or like um, something I've I mean I'm still working on it but something I found that helps a lot is just like journaling and writing yeah. about things and yeah I have kept I, I I don't like to say I'm a hoarder I'm not exactly a hoarder but I've kept every calendar we've ever had at the ballroom every journal I probably have although I have recently said you should just burn those because if you died you wouldn't want people reading them um, but I've kept them beca- and I keep this stuff in, f- in fear that I will forget something. I will never go back and look at it probably, but I'm also like dates and times. I now know that, you know, the ballroom's been open for 22 years. But if I, if, if you were to ask me, when did your father die? I couldn't tell you. 
I couldn't tell you the date my mother died on. I couldn't tell you the date my father died. I couldn't, you know, sometimes somebody will tell me something very personal and I will forget it. And I'll be like, these are your best friends that you're talking about. And you, what is that? So I'm always curious about memory and how that works for people. So, so I, you know, do I do a little studying about it? I know, I mean, enough studies have said that dance is the number one thing to help if there is something out there that can help you in terms of Alzheimer's. That would be the, the number one thing that they say to do is dance. So keep dancing? So keep dancing. I should start following. They say following is better than leading, which makes sense because you just never – you're always learning. If you're following, you're, you never use your – you can't use your brain to think about what to do next. You are actually in the moment, whereas a leader can has to think a little bit. Yeah, and I've also found, um, since I've started doing some following recently, yeah. said it's also really helpful for leading, yeah. just knowing how to follow steps. Uh, it makes me a lot more aware if I'm doing something that <laughs> is anatomically bad for the <laughs> right. Or whether or not it should be Lundy copy. Exactly. That's always on the back of my mind. Eventually, <laughs> you'll see me. Um, my next question, is there some sort of principle or belief that you live your life by? Be as kind as I can be. Um, I, I believe that everything changes always. Every second is the – so that in good times and bad times, you can either live in fear because things are good and you know if you believe that. You, you know that they're not always going to be good. But it is way more useful to go – Every single moment is a new moment. You have a new moment to experience something in a new way. So just always remember that things always change. And that makes the hard times it makes it helps me get through hard times and it reminds me to live in the moment when things are great and to not be afraid that that because they will always come and go and that if you know, if you're one of those people who's like, "Oh, I'm I wish I had done – you can always do this. You know, the, I can start something new every second. I can begin again. Yeah. So if you've been dying to dance – If you've been dying to dance, you can do it now. I heard this is a great place, Constance No, I heard that too. Well, Hallie, this has been a lot of fun. And I just have one last question before I let you go, which is, is there anything we didn't talk about uh, that you would like to bring up now? It could be anything from – something that was recently interesting to something you would like to promote or highlight? Uh, let's see. Well, we, so I run the ballroom. I own the Tin Table restaurant. I run the Tin Table. And I have a love of champagne. So one of the, so people know that I love dancing, but people also know that I love champagne. And so the thing that I th- well, I think the Century Ballroom is one of the best kept secrets because it's off the, you know, it's up on the second floor. So that's like if you've lived in Seattle for any period of time, whether it's, you know, two days or your whole life, a lot of people don't see it. I mean, they hear it. You can walk by the ballroom and you can hear music. So I recommend going upstairs, but I recommend looking the wall of champagne glasses, which there ha- is. And I recommend if you are at all a person who likes bubbles that you check out the list of champagne because it is probably one of the biggest lists in Seattle by the glass. And I think that every day is a party. So, A, I think if you're ever going to take yourself out to eat or drink, 
you are that that to me is a celebration because we don't have to do that anytime you are throw down your money for something uh you're celebrating something so um that's one of the things that I like about the ballroom because I like champagne a lot. I like to taste things. We have lots of ta- thing, ways in which you can taste, you know, wines side by side or bubbles side by side. But, you know, that's just – I always – that's one of the things that I think is a hidden thing that nobody knows about us that I like so very much. Yeah, I know I want to be chucking out that champagne uh, section. This is not coming out by the time this show. So this is just for you and me. You need to go to the bubble ball because A, you need to disco dance because who doesn't need to disco dance? But the bubble ball has everything from Dom Perignon on down. I mean, Tattinger, I mean, it has every, so and so many things that you won't know. And for 25 bucks, you can taste a bunch of champagne. So Sounds great. Yeah. I guess until then, thank you so much for coming on, Hallie. Thanks so much for asking me. Hey, everyone. This is Kevin again, which is a few more notes before you go. First of all, if you've enjoyed the show, I would really appreciate it if you could review it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't like the show, well, you should keep your opinions to yourself. I'm kidding. You can send me feedback at feedback at folkstories.org. That email is also included in the show notes. If you have nominations for people you would like to hear from or just general feedback or comments, you can also use that very same email address. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, have a fantastic week.